A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Lynn Bergeson, managing partner of Bergeson & Campbell. Lynn has earned an international reputation for her deep understanding of TOSCA, FIFRA, REACH, and all the other fun acronyms that our regulatory programs represent, in particular as it pertains to topics around nanotechnology, industrial biotechnology, and other emerging technologies. You definitely want Lynn and her team on your side if you're going to have to face Congress, the US EPA, the FDA, or any of these other governing bodies. I first got introduced to Lynn, however, through her podcast, All Things Chemical, which just celebrated its third year in podcasting, which frankly is a really big milestone. So Lynn, welcome to The Chemical Show. Well, thank you, Victoria. And I'm really delighted that you've asked me onto your show. And I want to applaud your efforts and congratulations on launching The Chemical Show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are both on this podcasting journey together. Exactly right. Awesome. So Lynn, I find it fascinating just the space that you're working in. And I'll be frank, a woman working in this space for as long as you have. So at the intersection of chemicals and regulation, how did you get started? What's your origin story? Well, that's a very good question, probably more serendipity than thoughtful, careful planning. But for reasons, Victoria, I will never understand. I have always been fascinated by chemicals. I didn't have a scientific background in college, but when I became a lawyer and was first introduced to the wonderful world of industrial chemicals, I just had an affinity for Tosca. So I worked in that space for a while and similarly worked in the agrochemical biocidal space under FIFRA and found that as I became a more experienced practitioner and also had an affinity for business, I enjoy business, I work or in three different organizations, all part of the Bergeson and Campbell platform, including our consulting affiliate and our consortium management company, I thought, what better way? than to work in a space that I both substantively love as a lawyer and can develop a domestic and international chemical practice. I also became more aware of the fact that I liked Washington, D.C. Okay, not a lot of people can really say that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) No, I really do. I grew up in Michigan. And as much as I love the Midwest, I find Washington a very exciting area. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I grant you that. But it's a fascinating, beautiful city. And if you are a young lawyer or a transitioning lawyer, Tosca and FIFRA are not delegated to the states. So all of the action, all of the rulemaking, all of the policy development is here in our nation's capital. So it represented a trifecta. I love the area. 
I love building my own business. And I worked in an area that is not delegated to the states, which means from a business perspective, people come to Washington lawyers to assist them on areas relating to industrial and agrochemicals, hence the birth of this practice. That's awesome. That's really neat. So I don't often hear people say they have an affinity for Tosca. So that's unique (laughs) in and of itself. Don't yeah. spread that around, Victoria. I want to well, be invited back public, to parties. So, you know. Uh-oh. So Tosca has undergone some significant revision. And how has that changed or influenced chemical manufacturing and distribution? Dramatically, in a word. And I'm not sure our clients and big chemical in the United States fully appreciated the seismic influence the Lautenberg Amendments in 2016 had and is having on domestic chemical production and distribution. Lautenberg really, really fundamentally altered the architecture of industrial chemical regulation, putting far more emphasis on targeted chemicals, those chemicals identified as high-priority substances under TSCA, And with regard to existing chemicals, those chemicals are now subject to risk evaluation, seriatim risk evaluation, which means from a business perspective, there will be a long and happy life for TSCA practitioners. But from a new chemical perspective, the changes to EPA reviewing and approving new chemicals has changed dramatically as well. So there have been many, many changes that are now being implemented and continue to be reinterpreted by EPA. This is our third presidential administration since the 2016 amendments. So there's been many policy changes, policy reinterpretations, and the pace of change in implementation of TSCA has made for a very active space since June 2016. It also has increased, in my view, the review of these changes by consumers and NGOs. Engagement in chemical exposures is high. Emphasis on environmental justice is high. Emphasis chemicals of concern, including PFAS and endocrine disruptor chemicals and other chemicals is high. So in short, it has really put industrial chemicals and their potential exposure to targeted subpopulations in the media crosshair is an NGO crosshairs and makes careful planning in this space absolutely essential. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think your point about just the increasing media focus, personal focus, NGO focus is challenging. And of course, I find, I mean, across a variety of topics, but especially topics related to chemicals, the danger is there's so much misinformation that is easily spread in our media channels and social media channels today that makes it difficult, right, to find the right navigable path through it. Well, and I, you raise an excellent point, Victoria, and your experience in this space is demonstrated by even raising the question. There is considerable misinformation. So it is all the more important for chemical manufacturers, processors, distributors, and brand owners to ensure that the chemicals that they use are fairly represented, disclosed, and their potential risks and benefits are fairly communicated to third-party and downstream others. Okay, so here's my big question. How do they do that? How do you help people navigate this? I guess that's because it's not easy. It is not easy, but number one, our 
business philosophy, Victoria, is to always follow the science. While we are a law firm and consulting firm, we have many more scientists on our staff, Hmm. industrial chemists, toxicologists, exposure assessors. So we feel very strongly that you need to be transparent, clear, and scientifically grounded in communicating the benefits and potential risks of your products. And whether you are a neat chemical manufacturer, a formulator, or a brand owner, it's important to be clear with your upstream suppliers and they with you and your downstream customers to be absolutely rock solid when you're asked a question about what's in this product. Will it harm me? You want to be clear that you know what's in your product and you are able confidently, comfortably, and transparently to say, no, it will not harm you. Because any lesser standard of transparency and diligence is likely to pose formidable problems for you down the road. Yeah, makes sense. So I see a lot this year in particular, and maybe it's just because it's bubbled up in my newsfeed through algorithms. (laughs) I see a lot about PFAS. So what's changing? What does that actually mean for chemical companies? Well, there is a lot of focus on PFAS, and there has been actually for years. This, as you know, is a synthetic class of chemicals that have been around for a long time. And because of their widespread and well-known persistence and potential adverse human health and environmental effects, there is certainly a domestic and increasingly global focus on diminishing the amount of PFASs as a chemical class in the environment and in products, which has been the source of considerable regulatory activity here in the United States. So the class of chemicals are well known. There are thousands of them. The agency just this past year put forward a definition of a PFAS substance, which has helped everyone understand what it includes and what it doesn't include. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps to know what the category is and, and set boundaries, right? Because then you can work with those boundary conditions. That's, well, at least you can have clarity with regard to if you are required, as EPA has proposed a rule earlier this year to disclose the types of PFAS substances that you manufacture and distribute or might be included in an article if it's being imported into the United States. You need to know what you are required to do, right? And so the definition is helpful in defining the universe of chemicals that EPA has expressed interest in. And ultimately, there are many other rulemakings and other environmental media. I think most particularly, though, under the Toxic Substances Control Act with respect to disclosing the presence of PFASs, there are a number of rulemakings with regard to whether a PFAS that is not yet listed on the TOSCA inventory should be permitted into the United States through a manufacturing and import opportunity or even subject to what we call a low volume exemption. So there's considerable scrutiny in trying to really understand how a PFAS substance might both impart properties that are valuable and reasonable and not allow chemicals that are perceived to add to environmental harms through their persistence, bioaccumulative, and toxic nature. So anybody in this space or relying upon the functionalities of these substances need to be mindful of what these chemicals are and what the potential regulatory opportunities are, because that could diminish their commercial utility. 
Yeah, I mean, eventually I think things could get regulated away, right? The, their use could. Some, I like to think that the agency continues to implement Tosca in a way that imposes a risk-based analysis, right? It's not that chemicals must pose no risk, they must pose no unreasonable risk. That's a good point. As a stakeholder in this space, that chemicals are capable of posing risk. The question is not whether they do, but whether they are an unreasonable given the valuable properties and essential nature that they provide. So that's the delicate balance that we will be dealing with for years to come on how to allow certain PFAS substances that offer value and are essential in electronics and in other industry sectors versus diminishing, if not eliminating, as you suggest, Victoria, PFAS substances that pose unreasonable risk and hence need to be regulated. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, I think the whole aspect of risk management around this is critical. And, you know, we are seeing a lot of innovation across the the chemical industry, right? So there's an accelerated focus on sustainability, digitization, which, you know, thankfully maybe, well, on its surface is less about chemicals, but, you know, when you get into the computers, there's all kinds, but also a lot of green chemistry. So we've got a lot of focus on innovation, and and yet you kind of referenced earlier that with the revisions to Tosca and stuff, it's becoming maybe a bit more challenging with new chemicals. So what do you see as some of the challenges with chemical innovation today and bringing in new tech, new chemicals or new ways of manufacturing chemicals? Well, that's another excellent question, Victoria. We spend an awful lot of time helping chemical innovators enable their substances to enter the stream of commerce, which since the 2016 amendments to TSCA now force EPA to make one of three determinations. So the burden, the regulatory burden has shifted considerably to the innovator to prove that the chemical they wish to innovate and commercialize in the United States poses no unreasonable risk. So the process is considerably more challenging now than it was in the 40 years Tosca existed when it was first implemented in 1976. And as I noted earlier, because three different administrations have taken a shot at implementing Congress's writings in 2016, the standards and interpretation of how to demonstrate no unreasonable risk have been a little bit of a moving target, okay? So in addition to the shifting standards, the the fees associated with commercializing a chemical are considerably higher than they used to be. It was used to be $2,500 to submit a new chemical PMN application. Now it's about $16,000. And often the absence of specific data with respect to your new chemical innovation can be the subject of considerable frustration because the agency uses various computer models to predict the toxicity of a chemical, which tend to be very, very conservative. So at the end of the day, Victoria, the process has become more expensive, more uncertain, and more challenging, which has the effect of perhaps chilling the submission of new chemical applications. And those that are submitted are subject to very significant scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And if you're a new chemical innovator, you're often relying upon investor resources to kickstart your company. The absence of certainty with regard to whether you will have an approved PMN substance after the 90-day review period tends to put a crimp, right, in commercializing products where it's not a sure bet. 
So for a variety of reasons, the number of applications has decreased since Lautenberg and the percent of chemicals that are now subject to restriction through the imposition of significant new use restrictions or consent orders has increased dramatically. Hmm, Interesting. Is it easier to get a product approved in the U.S. if it's already been approved elsewhere? Is there a benefit that you get and does that drive innovation in different regions or do you see it as being kind of neutral? I think it's probably pretty neutral if depending upon what other jurisdiction to which you are referring, if it's the European Union, you might have greater access to a data that could support a new chemical application here in the United States, which is, you know, an upside. But the fact that another jurisdiction has approved a chemical doesn't necessarily help or hinder an application here in the United States. The agency's legal burden is clear. The agency's response to the absence of data on a substance is clear, and that the agency will use various computer models to assess a chemical's risk potency. So it's probably value neutral more than anything, in my view. Now, the reverse is probably not true. If you, you have a new chemical approved here, I continue to think that it's the gold standard. And you might have an easier time marketing it in other jurisdictions. Interesting. That's good to know, actually. It's good for U.S. innovation. I think so. Yeah, awesome. So one of the things when you talk about the agency, and we've obviously gone through a change in presidency and administration, and you know, you always hear, I hear at least through the news, you know, things are slow to replace, slow to replace a new head of the EPA, slow to replace other aspects. Is the EPA appropriately staffed? How much does it matter? How much of the rest of the organization changes when there's a change at the top? And does that a big influence about where we are at the moment, right? We're mm-hmm. less than a year into a new administration. So is, is that part of the timing aspects we see or not? Well, you asked a lot in that question. That was a, couple a, that of, was a lot of questions. All <laughs> there <at once. laughs> but a lot, they're all good. They're, they're all really, really good. Because sometimes we're challenged when a client calls and says, gosh, darn it. I submitted a PMN application six months ago, and it's still not. So a couple of things. Number one, changes of administration, changes at the top are inevitable. But generally staff, the career workers at EPA don't rotate out, right? Just senior political appointees do. Number two, I think under the prior administration, there was diminished resourcing for EPA across the board. And there was also just given the maturity of EPA, we had what we call a brain drain. A lot of, you know, senior people that had been around the agency for a long time elected to leave the agency and retire, right? So it's a confluence of factors that have rendered EPA, particularly in the chemicals program area under the leadership of Dr. Michal Friedhoff, significantly understaffed. In fact, Assistant Administrator Friedhoff testified before a House subcommittee on October the 27th and said with regard to the new chemicals program, EPA is down about 50% of the requisite staffing needs to ensure, right, a functioning Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. Now, the good news is the current appropriations bill would fund EPA significantly more to help make up some of those staffing deficits which would also enable the agency to get more and different skill sets engaged in both new chemical and agrochemical review. Got it. 
So combination of factors, the proverbial perfect storm of an, an aging EPA infrastructure, a administration that was not in all cases kind to staffing the agency with the funds and the resources it needed. And we hope that with the new appropriations bill, that will change. Cool. Awesome. So what about global regulations? What are the effects of global regulations on U.S.-based businesses? Are there anything new? I know when REACH was introduced, heck, has it been 15 years now, 10, 15 years? That has greater far-reaching effects than I think anybody really anticipated. Is there anything on the horizon at the moment that's as far-reaching as REACH was? You are so right, Victoria. You are wise beyond your years. REACH had just a remarkably significant impact on domestic industrial chemical regulation by jumpstarting the initiatives that had begun years before to revitalize and modernize Tosca in a way that would help address some of the concerns that had been articulated with respect to Tosca long before 2016. But, you know, a couple of things that are pushing the envelope and finding their way across the pond include the European Green Deal, and in particular, the sustainable chemicals component of the European Green Deal. Under the terms of that Green Deal, European Union is expected to be climate neutral and and achieve a circular economy by 2050. And some of the lessons learned in the context of those initiatives, I think, are having a greater impact on the domestic interpretation of sustainability and circularity. It might not necessarily be felt in all cases in regulatory initiatives, but with respect to investor demand, consumer demand, NGO demand, I think it will hasten a move to a much more consciously circular economy and one that is more demonstrably sustainable, which given our prior discussion with respect to challenges new chemical innovators are facing could pose some dramatic points of tension between Tosca implementation and a need for more sustainable, more circular chemicals. Because many of the chemical manufacturers that we represent offer faster, greener, more sustainable, less toxic chemical technological platforms, and certainly more sustainable and more circular than the chemicals that they would like to replace. But if they're having a hard time getting commercialized, it's putting efforts back to make our chemicals more sustainable and more circular if we can't get them into commerce. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've heard this from people in the industry who are trying to bring on some new bio-based products, for instance. Exactly. That it's been far longer than they anticipated, and yet there's a need for it, right? There's a demand from their customers and obviously fits into this broader picture of circularity and sustainability. That's exactly right. Yeah. So Lynn, you launched a podcast, All Things Chemical, three years ago. Mm -hmm. What prompted that? And what have you learned from that podcast? Well, what prompted it was, I think, our collective belief that there is a wonderful story to tell with regard to chemical substances both in the industrial, agrochemical, and biocidal space. And sometimes all of the other platforms in which we operate, we have four blogs, we maintain a vigorous email memoranda a system where we push out information, but it's, it's very one-dimensional, right? It's just reading. And many of the 
very diverse stakeholders in the community in which we're fortunate enough to work, including chemical leaders, government affairs specialists, members of Congress, EPA officials, NGOs, and others just are have fabulous stories to tell. And I don't mean stories in the sense of fictional stories. I mean, what is, their commitment to this space, their commitment to navigating a very challenging commercial space, given the, all the influences that are brought to bear in commercializing, maintaining, and developing a product that at its roots is premised on chemicals. So we thought, wouldn't it be fun to bring some of these stories to life? And we created the podcast series in a way to fulfill that expectation and round out our portfolio of offerings for people to understand what it is we do and why we do it. Awesome. I think it's great. And I think it's kudos to you for launching it and for having a successful podcast three years later. It's great. Well, thank you, Victoria. Very kind. Awesome. So what is on the horizon for you and or chemical regulations as we get ready to enter 2022? Well, I think there's a lot in store. We're coming into the midterm season. So 2022 legislatively will be challenging. So I certainly don't see much on the horizon there. Interesting. Yeah. But this EPA under Dr. Friedhoff's leadership is very committed to continuing to implement TSCA, which means the first 10 chemical risk evaluations and EPA's ongoing tinkering with the risk evaluation framework will start bearing fruit in 2022. We'll see more emphasis on what exactly environmental justice means with regard to risk evaluation. Mm -hmm. How are certain targeted demographics impacted by the agency's evolving policies? We'll see much more with PFAS, the EPA PFAS action plan, how that will play out in the various media, RICRA cleanup. Circle Cleanup, Clean Water Act regulations, Safe Drinking Water Act regulation, PFASs that are trying to make their way through the low volume exemption and new chemical application. We'll see much more of that. I think we will see additional emphasis on not just PFASs, but all of the chemicals that have been identified to date in the existing risk evaluation process, the 10 that are through and the 20 that are going through, and what products are implicated by conditions of use by those chemicals. And more generally, I think we will see enhanced regulation of articles, you know, finished end consumer goods that contain substances of concern to the agency. It's been a big deal in 2021 as a consequence of EPA's regulation of five PBT chemicals and that will continue to stress the supply chain, both in terms of the availability of products that contain chemicals of concern, like PIP31 and DECA BDE, but also stress the system in terms of supplier certifications. We began this conversation with transparency and the need to be aware of what chemicals are in your product so you can report that to your downstream customers And you can ask your upstream customers, what's in this product? That will continue, I think, for many years to come, which will stress supply chain availability and supply chain communications. So we'll continue to see all of that in the next year and probably lots more. 
Interesting. Well, I, I'm sad to hear that you think regulations are going to start impacting some of these supply chain availability because I know everyone across the industry has been struggling with it, but it also makes sense in terms of just where we are and, and where the industry and, and regulations are going. Well, and, and you raise a good point. I'm not the supply chain disruptions that we are seeing occasioned by the pandemic and a variety of other issues. It's a very complicated economic equation, but the regulation of articles has added to that supply chain stress and in ways that I think EPA may not have fully appreciated when the rule came out in January of 2020. Interesting. Really interesting. Lynn, it has been really delightful to talk with you today. I'm so glad that you joined us and I appreciate you taking time to be on The Chemical Show. Well, Victoria, thank you again for inviting me into your house and I wish you all my very best with regard to your own podcast. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to The Chemical Show today. Please remember to share, follow, and give some feedback. We love to hear from you. Thanks. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.